text this Lord's Day is from Mark chapter 14, verses 10 through 16. Let me read for you our text. And Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went unto the chief priests to betray him unto them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought how he might conveniently betray him. And the first day of unleavened bread, when they killed the Passover, his disciples said unto him, Where wilt thou that we go and prepare that thou mayest eat the Passover? And he sendeth forth two of his disciples, and saith unto them, Go ye into the city, and there shall meet you a man bearing a pitcher of water. Follow him. And wheresoever he shall go in, say ye to the goodman of the house. The master saith, Where is the guest chamber where I shall eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and prepared. There make ready for us. And his disciples went forth and came into the city and found as he had said unto them. And they made ready the Passover. We often grow very weary in passing through times of preparation in our lives. We often forget that the Lord is doing a work in our lives during those times of preparation, during those days and weeks and months and years of trial. They are days and weeks and months and years of preparation. All of that preparation is training us to look to Christ for His grace to be diligent and faithful in not only the big things in life, but to be diligent and faithful in the small things in life as well. So often we would prefer to set an, an Olympic record after just a, a month of casual exercise, or to find that perfect man or that perfect woman for our life after committing it to the Lord in prayer for a week or so. You know, we may be very goal-oriented people, but we hate going through all of the necessary preparation to get to the goals that we believe are right for our lives, that God has established for us in our lives. But dear ones, we will never reach those goals, those righteous and holy goals in our lives without painful preparation. Do you desire to work your way up the ladder at your job, place of employment? Well, you must usually begin at the bottom. Begin at the bottom with doing all of the, the little things, as it were, before you can be entrusted with the big things. Do you aspire to be a church officer? Well, you must take the time to prepare yourself and show yourself faithful again in the little things before things of a greater responsibility are given to you. Do you desire to earn some uh, academic degree? Well, you must apply yourself mentally and physically tirelessly, it seems at times, on a daily basis to do the homework, the daily homework and those big examinations that come your way that lie in the path and you're reaching that goal of obtaining that degree. It's hard work. Preparation is always hard work. It may be difficult, dear ones, at times to realize, but God is preparing you every day for events that you will face down the road of your life. Will you be ready for those events that lie ahead of you, whether they are painful or whether they're pleasurable? Will you be prepared because of how you're using the trials that you're presently going through 
Do you see them as preparation for the, that time? Well, that depends to a large extent upon whether you are leaning upon the Lord, trusting in His grace, and being faithful in the little things as well as in the big things in these days of preparation. The encouraging thing from our text today, I believe, is this, that the Lord Jesus Himself even went through times of preparation. As He looked to the goal of obtaining the redemption of ungodly sinners like you and me. From our text this Lord's Day, let us consider the following aspects of preparation leading up to the Lord's sacrificial death. First of all, the preparation of a traitor. In Mark 14, verses 10 through 11. And secondly, the preparation of the Passover lamb. In Mark chapter 14, verses 12 through 16. Our first main point then is the preparation of a traitor. Look with me at verses 10 through 11. And Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went unto the chief priests to betray him unto them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought how he might conveniently betray him. Let's consider for a moment this betrayer, Judas Iscariot. His name, like that of Benedict Arnold in American history, is synonymous with a traitor. He was literally a man from Kerioth. That's what his name means. Iscariot means a man from Kerioth, which was a town that was located in the southern part of Judea. The scripture says that he was the son of one named Simon. And it would appear that as we consider Judas, that he was a man who had natural gifts and abilities that were evident by way of leadership within the, amongst the apostles. For he was chosen to be an apostle, and furthermore, he was chosen and appointed to be the, the treasurer of the group, which I would submit is the only official position of leadership that we ever find mentioned amongst the disciples, that he was the treasurer. And so when we might think back to the discussions that the disciples had concerning who would be the greatest in the kingdom of God, because of his official position as treasurer, Judas's name would no doubt have come to the forefront in such a discussion. It's very unlikely that he was a totally unqualified man by way of natural abilities and, uh, and was appointed to this particular position in spite of his lack of abilities. It's much more likely to assume that here was a man who was gifted in many ways by way of leadership abilities. We find from the scripture in Mark chapter 3, verses 3 through 15, that Judas had the same ability to perform miracles as did the other apostles. For Christ commissioned all twelve, gave them the ability to go forth to perform miracles, to cast out demons, to heal the sick, this they did. Judas was also one of those who was sent out two by two to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And yet, and yet, it is very evident that he never truly embraced Jesus Christ as his only hope of eternal salvation. In fact, the Lord says of Judas in John chapter 6 verse 70 that he was a devil. We might say of Judas, so close to Christ in one sense. Physically. Being within the visible church. Being in leadership. So close to Christ. And yet in another sense, so far away from Christ. In that sense which matters the most. He 
was not trusting in Christ as his only righteousness. He was not looking to Christ as his only hope of eternal salvation. No doubt, Judas falls under the category or heading of these of whom it speaks in Matthew chapter 7, verse 22, where the Lord says, Many will come to me in that day and will say, and you'll recall what the Lord said they would say, Have we not prophesied in thy name? Have we not uh, cast out demons in thy name? Have we not performed many wonderful works in thy name? They're coming to him on the basis of their works, on the basis of their position, on the basis of their status in the church, in the visible church. Not on the basis of Christ and his righteousness. And the Lord will turn to them and will say to them, Depart from me, you workers of iniquity, I never knew you. Were there ever such sobering words? Depart from me. You workers of iniquity, I never knew you. How, dear ones, we read these words and it causes us to ask the question, what am I trusting? What am I looking to? Am I looking to anything to make me worthy or acceptable before God other than Christ's righteousness? Well, here we learn, dear ones, that hypocrites may be found in the best of company and even among the very apostles of Jesus Christ. A hypocrite like Judas blended in so well with the other apostles that no one ever seemed, at least we have no evidence of it, no one ever seemed to question his sincerity. And yet the rebuke of Christ at the feast just prior to this passage that we're reading from and preaching from today, wherein the Lord rebuked the disciples, and especially Judas, who apparently was the ringleader in criticizing Mary for having brought the alabaster of perfume and having broken it and having spread it upon the Lord's head and upon his feet and drying his feet with her hair as an act preparing him for his burial, his death and his burial. That criticism that the Lord directed toward Judas and the other disciples, wherein he approved of the work which Mary had done and told them to leave her alone, that criticism would appear because it follows immediately afterwards that he goes out to betray Christ. That there was some link that in some way this pushed him over the edge. Dear ones, do the loving rebukes of Christ that are found in his word or found on the lips of your pastor or the lips of your parents or even from the lips of your children the loving rebukes of Christ that come from fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, do those cause you to run away from that brother or sister? Do they cause you to not want to hear what they have said because it's a rebuke or a correction? Does it cause you to want to go out and betray that brother or sister? Criticize them behind their back because they have rebuked you or corrected you. This is what Judas did with that correction that Christ gave to him. You know, none of us may jump up and down for joy at receiving correction or rebuke because it hurts at times. But we must realize the profit and the benefit that comes to us in receiving correction and rebuke. A Christian, dear ones, a Christian evidences, I believe, his faith because he learns from correction and rebuke that he receives from others. 
even if he finds it difficult to receive, he learns from it. Whereas I would submit to you that the non-Christian, the hypocrite, does not learn from correction and rebuke, but underneath the surface boils with bitterness and resentment toward the one who has brought the correction or the rebuke to him or to her. And even in his imagination begins to hope for and to look for some type of public humiliation to befall the one who brought the rebuke. Or some way that you might be able to get even with the person who brought the rebuke. The Christian lives to be thankful for the sincere and loving rebukes he has received while the hypocrite lives to be vindictive and to attack the one who has corrected him. Dear ones, we saw in Mark chapter 14, verses 3 through 9, in a previous sermon, the damaging effect of sinful criticism as it was hurled against Mary. But we note now the damaging effect of not receiving the loving criticism and rebuke of Christ, however it may come to us. If we do not receive it, there will be consequences in our lives in one way or another. Note how, dear ones, Judas even carried out this meeting with the religious leaders to betray Christ. These religious leaders who hated the Lord Jesus Christ. And he did so after having heard the, the Lord say that Mary did what she did, this act of love in pouring forth upon his head and upon his feet this perfume. She did so in order to anoint him and to prepare him for his burial. This no doubt had to remind Judas of what Christ had said many times, that he was going to die and that he was going to be raised from the dead. And yet, even in spite of the reminder that Christ was to die, that in itself did not soften the heart of this betrayer. But the death and the burial of Jesus Christ even hardened the heart of this betrayer. And I would ask you, dear ones, does the sacrificial death of the Lord Jesus Christ for sinners and for the chief of sinners, does it send you running from Christ or does it draw you to Jesus Christ? Does it soften your heart or does it harden your heart and make your heart callous before the Lord? Do you become apathetic because you have heard this so many times or does it continue to break your heart before the Lord? The death and burial of Christ, dear ones, did not break the heart of Judas, the betrayer, but it hardened his heart and he went out and conspired with those who hated Christ to betray Christ. The Christian dear ones, can never forget the free grace of Christ and the love of Christ that was demonstrated in his sacrificial death for even the chief of sinners. There's one other observation at this point that I would like to make as well about this about this portion of our text. Note how it would appear that the natural gift of leadership which Judas possessed likely became the very occasion <laughs> and the weakness which Satan attacked in leading Judas to betray Christ. We said that he had apparently leadership abilities. And I would submit because it says that Judas was a thief in John chapter 12 
though being the treasure, he was a thief, he was pilfering from the treasury, that he coveted certainly money, but I would submit to you that if he participated in the discussion concerning the who's the greatest in the kingdom of God, which it says basically the disciples entered into this discussion amongst themselves, and because of his place of leadership amongst the disciples, that he also coveted a place of leadership, not only a place of, of uh, financial power, but also a place of leadership power. And as he began to hear of Christ speaking of his death, which was to come, it is very possible, very likely, that in Judas's mind, it began to shift from seeing Christ as being the messianic king who was going to, in Judas's mind, establish Israel over all the nations at that time and take his seat upon the throne in Jerusalem, it began to appear to him that Christ was going to die. The, the various references, the various times which Christ spoke of his death, and now he spoke of it at this particular, on this occasion. And I would submit that it was that very gift of leadership that Satan, by which Satan tempted him to betray Christ. Because now, because it's leadership that he desires and aspires to, and he sees his opportunity beginning to, to become less and less with Christ, he begins to shift his loyalties to the chief priests, the scribes, the Pharisees. So the weak, the strength that he had, in a sense, became his weakness. The very occasion of his falling into the sin of betraying Christ. Dear ones, on the basis that, of that, beware that your gifts and abilities do not become a stumbling block to you and turn you from being unfaithful to Christ. Desires to be a leader are indeed commendable. If your goal is to be a servant of Christ and a servant of God's people. However, if our motive is to rule more than to serve, if our motive is to be in the spotlight more than to be used of God in whatever way God deems fit and would benefit His kingdom, if our motive is to seek the approval of men more than it is to seek the approval of Christ, we are using our gifts of leadership to serve ourselves rather than to serve Christ and his people. Dear ones, never let the long road of preparation and service deter you from becoming a godly leader. Shortcuts becoming a godly leader will likely lead to betrayal in some form later on down the road. Frustration over the time that it takes to become a leader over the setbacks that may be set before you in becoming a leader will likely lead to betrayal later on down the road. Let's rather see every day that we live as a day of preparation for future days of leadership. In whatever capacity that Christ would choose to use us. Judas was an opportunist. True leaders, dear ones, are proven, tried, and faithful servants in ministering to God's people, faithful to Jesus Christ, whatever the cost. Do not let your gifts, your strengths that God has given you, whether it's working with your hands, whether it's in writing, whether it's in debating, whether it's in music, whether it's in intellectual studies of some kind, whatever your abilities be, in crafts, do 
not allow your gifts and abilities to become the occasion of betrayal to Christ and to others in your life. It is easy, very, very easy to take pride in those gifts and abilities that God has given to us. To trust in the gifts more than we trust in the giver. To glory in the gifts more than we glory in the one who's given us those gifts. May God help us not to set ourselves up for such a fall by looking to those gifts and abilities, but looking to Christ to use us in whatever capacity He chooses to using those gifts and abilities. Before moving on to our second main point, I remind you, dear ones, this is, in my judgment, very, very important to note. Regardless of the sinful betrayal of Judas and the greedy desire that he had for both wealth and power, let us never forget that the Lord Jesus Christ, in this time of preparation, the preparation preparation of a betrayer. Christ was not a victim. Jesus was not a victim. For although Judas entered into an abominable agreement to betray Christ into the wicked hands of the leaders in the church at that time, the foreordained plan of God to save guilty sinners from his all-consuming wrath was moving forward to its fulfillment, even in the preparation of betrayer. Beloved, the greed for money and the lust for power on the part of Judas and the hatred that the leaders of the church at that time had for Jesus Christ did not make Christ an unwilling victim. No, the Lord Jesus willingly and freely submitted to this betrayal and hatred in order to accomplish the redemption of those idolaters and blasphemers and sabbath-breakers and murderers and adulterers and thieves and liars whom he loved from all eternity and had determined to save by his perfect obedience to God's law and his sacrificial death as the Lamb of God to which this Passover pointed. We find in Matthew 26:15 these words, And they, that is the chief priests, covenanted with him, that is Judas, for thirty pieces of silver. I ask, why is that significant? Well, it's significant because this is the fulfillment of a prophecy that was made concerning Christ and his betrayal in Zechariah chapter 11, verses 12 and 13 wherein the exact price of 30 pieces of silver is prophesied. Here is the flip side, if you will, to the treacherous betrayal of Judas. Christ was not a helpless victim. He was fulfilling the eternal plan of God to save even betrayers and haters of Christ who will come to him as their only hope of eternal salvation, as their only forgiveness, and as their only life. The Almighty God takes even times of betrayal. Listen closely. The Almighty God takes even times of betrayal and turns them into times of salvation, redemption, and love for His people. Yes, the betrayal of Judas first brought pain, no doubt. It first brought heartache and confusion to the hearts and lives of Christ's disciples. They fled, and Christ was betrayed that night. They fled in different directions from Christ. But there was the ultimate effect, due to God's overruling and sovereign plan, was to bring blessing to these weak, struggling disciples through the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ on their behalf. Therefore, dear ones, let us not look at ourselves as mere victims when any trial may come into our lives. Let us rather see ourselves as a part of this wonderful, everlasting plan of God to bless His people 
And let us look at these trials as times of preparation for goals that God has prepared for us in the future. It is not in vain. You are not spinning your wheels. It is not wasted time. You are moving forward. If you will, simply trust God in the midst of your times of preparation and your trials right now. The preparation of the betrayer was the preparation for Christ's exaltation and for our salvation. The second and final main point is this. The preparation of the Passover lamb in Mark chapter 14 verses 12 through 16. And we read these words. And the first day of unleavened bread when they killed the Passover, his disciples said unto him, Where wilt thou that we go and prepare that thou mayest eat the Passover? And he sendeth forth two of his disciples and saith unto them, Go ye into the city, and there shall meet you a man bearing a pitcher of water. Follow him. And wheresoever he shall go in, say ye to the goodman of the house. The master saith, Where is the guest chamber where I shall eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and prepared. There make ready for us. And his disciples went forth, and came into the city, and found as he had said unto them, and they made ready the Passover. We now turn from the preparation of a betrayer to the preparation of the Passover lamb. For we learn now that the first day of unleavened bread, when they killed the Passover lamb, was come, according to Mark 14.12. The entire seven-day feast was called the Feast of Unleavened Bread, though the first day of that feast was called the Passover. The Passover, you'll recall, was commanded by the Lord to be kept holy in all succeeding generations by means of the blood of a lamb being shed and being put upon the house. The sacrifice of that Passover lamb caused the Lord to turn away his avenging wrath from those who were covered by the blood of that lamb. And as we come to the New Covenant, we find revealed to us in Christ Jesus, we learn that Christ is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, according to John 1.29. And that He is our Passover Lamb who is sacrificed for us, according to 1 Corinthians 5.7. Thus the Passover, dear ones, was an annual appointed holy day that not only looked backward, to the time of deliverance of Israel from Egypt, but even more importantly looked forward to the Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, who would save His people from their sins. Thus it is not an accident that God ordained the sacrifice of Christ to immediately follow the Passover. There is a direct relationship between the two. The one being the type, the other being the anti-type, or the fulfillment. And there's no accident that on that same night, as we will learn in a future sermon, that the Lord's Supper was instituted after the Passover. The Lord's Supper, wherein God's people by faith share in the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. As we consider just very briefly the preparation for that Passover lamb, the Passover lamb had likely been picked out and purchased earlier in the week by Christ or the disciples as we find taught in Exodus 12 verse 3. The lamb was then taken on that Passover evening to the temple where it was slain before the altar and it was slain 
by the one who brought the lamb there, the one who would be taking it back to the family, to the friends in the household who would be partaking of it. And those who did partake of it, we learn or infer from Exodus chapter 12, verses 25 through 27, that those who did actually eat of the sacramental meal had knowledge, sufficient knowledge to be able to understand the implications and, and the meaning of this particular meal. Because there we find the catechetical question being asked, what mean ye by this service? There are those who are able to ask the question, those who are able to explain the answer to the question, demonstrated that they were qualified to come to the sacramental meal. And then this, this lamb having been brought back now, roasted, at the appropriate time was eaten with unleavened bread and bitter herbs, as is taught in Exodus 12, verse 8. Dear ones, I would have you remember that the Lord Jesus Christ kept not only the moral law of God perfectly in order to deliver us forever from its curse, but he kept perfectly the ceremonial law in order to deliver us forever from its yoke. His righteousness was fulfilled in keeping all of God's law for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. A lot of we cannot improve upon the righteousness of Christ. Nothing we can do can improve upon that perfected righteousness. All of our righteousness, the Scripture teaches, is as filthy rags. Let us find in Christ every day the healing salve to our guilty conscience and to our polluted hearts. Let us bathe ourselves daily in the fragrant and cleansing waters of Christ's perfect righteousness that has been earned for us. But our text continues to describe the preparation of a room in which to meet. The disciples ask where they shall prepare to eat the Passover meal in Mark 14.12. And the Lord then sends it says two of his disciples in Mark 14:12, but uh, in Luke 22:8 it tells us which two of these disciples were sent. And indeed, it was Peter and John that were sent to make these final preparations for the Passover meal. But Christ does not give the name of the landlord or the address of the place where they're to go to make preparations. Rather, the Lord tells them by way of His sovereign. Plan, by way of his divine omniscience that they will meet a servant carrying water as they enter into the city and they are to follow that servant to the house and to ask the master of that house, the goodman of that house, the landowner, that the master desires to meet here to have his Passover meal. This most likely, though not necessarily, but most likely was a, a follower of Christ. Because the disciples say, The Master saith, Where is the guest chamber where I shall eat the Passover with my disciples? Well, the goodman, the, the uh, landlord, agrees and shows them to this, this room, this guest room, where they can have their, their final Passover together. And they make all preparations for that final Passover. I'd have you know, dear ones, that the Lord of glory made himself so poor in becoming a man that he did not even have a house of his own, unlike most of us. He did not have a house of his own that he owned in which to host the final meal with his disciples. He didn't own a home. He who owned everything by divine right, became poor and was homeless in that respect, that we might inherit the everlasting, infinite riches of heaven, forever and ever. I beseech you, I exhort myself as well, let us not fall prey to the sin of discontentment. 
when we do not have what we want to require. Whether it's health, wealth, fame, success, freedom from trials, let us not become discontent. Jesus Christ had little to nothing in his life, and yet, the scripture says, he was exalted far above every name that could be named in heaven or in earth. Let us learn contentment with whatever the Lord chooses to bless us. Let us be thankful, dear ones, for every crumb that God gives to us and enjoy it to God's glory. Isn't it interesting that Peter, in this particular account, as he is sent out on a mission, not knowing exactly where he's going, he doesn't have a map, he doesn't have a, a person's name, he doesn't have an address, he's sent out on this mission just knowing that the Lord is going to guide him to the right person here. And this was prophesied by Christ, but he was able to trust Christ in this particular situation to do what the Lord had asked him to do, and not to question that. And yet, the same Christ, the same divine power, the same divine omniscience that had prophesied back in Mark 8, verses 31 through 33, that he was going to die and be raised the third day, in that instance, you recall that Peter rebuked the Lord and said, Lord, let it not be. This can't happen. Even though the Lord was prophesying that it would happen. You know, who changed here? It wasn't Christ who changed. His word was true in both accounts. It was Peter who changed. In the one instance, he did not trust the Lord and what the Lord was saying. That it would come to pass. Obviously, desires and, and various things in his own heart were leading him in this direction. But he did not trust the Lord. In this other instance that we've just mentioned, where the Lord prophesied that they would meet this man carrying this, this vessel and that he would guide them to the place where they would meet for the Passover. He trusted the Lord in that, in, on that occasion. It is so typical of us, all of us, who are weak disciples of Christ, to trust him and follow him when it is what we want and what we desire. But oh, how difficult it is for our corrupt heart to trust Christ when it is not what we want or what we desire. When it spoils our dreams or our success, there was, it is the same Christ who cannot lie, who prophesied the one event to Peter as the other event. And in fact, I would have you know, the one event which Peter did not like, that was prophesied, namely, the death of Christ proved to be that which was most profitable to Peter's well-being. The one thing he didn't want to see happen was the very thing that God used to redeem Peter from his sin, to save all sinners who put their faith and trust in Christ. The point here simply is, dear ones, that we should trust Christ regardless of how we perceive we will be either benefited or not benefited, blessed or not blessed materially or physically. We will be blessed spiritually with manifold blessings if we do obey Christ in His revealed will. It is our part as Christ's disciples to trust Him and obey Him even when we cannot see how all the things and the plans are going to work out. To follow Him. To know that He sees the end from the beginning we should not first try to figure out where our obedience, knowing what God requires of us, knowing that we should obey, we should not first try to figure out where our obedience is going to lead us and then say, after I figured it all out, then I'll decide whether I'm going to obey Christ if we know what He requires of us. Rather, we should let obedience to Christ lead us wherever Christ will have it to lead us. And we've spoken today in conclusion of betrayer 
being the Jews. He was not willing, Jones, to go for Christ would have him to go. He was not willing to trust Christ if it did not take him where he wanted it to go. Let us not, therefore, Jones, be a Judas. Neither let us gloat over the fact that we are not a Judas because we are not a Judas because of Christ, not because of who we are. It is the fact that the Lord has restrained the Judas in all of us that we are not a Judas and a betrayer of Jesus Christ. Let us not gloat and cry. In closing, here is the words of that young but faithful covenanted minister, James Rennick, who followed Christ to his death, even though he still had so much of life ahead of him. And he exhorted all covenanters, all believers in Jesus Christ, before he was martyred for the cause of Christ, with these words. Tell them from me not to weary nor to be discouraged in maintaining their testimony. Let them not quit or forego one of these despised truths. Let them keep their ground and the Lord will provide them churches and ministers. And when he comes, he will make these despised truths glorious and dearing. Amen. So let it be, Lord Jesus Christ. Please stand in prayer. Our gracious Father in heaven, how we thank thee for thy correcting and rebuking words. How we praise thee, O Lord, that thou dost love us enough not to leave us in our sin and our self-pity and our feeling sorry for ourselves because of the trials and circumstances that we may find ourselves in. But, O Lord, Thou dost correct us in love, and Thou dost show us afresh and anew what Christ did suffer and what those who have been faithful to the cause of Christ have suffered. And Thou dost, O Lord, bring us to such embarrassment and shame that we would, O Lord, begin to question these things. That we would begin to turn our backs upon truth because of what we may have to suffer. That that would enter into these questions or decisions in our life. O Lord, we pray that thou would help us once knowing the truth not to count the cost in the sense of deciding thereafter whether we're going to obey or not. Help us, O Lord, to realize that counting the cost means, in fact, that we have seen where our suffering is going to lead because we're standing for the truth and we're willing to go there. O Father, we pray that Thou would uphold us and sustain us. We thank Thee, Lord, for the ministry of Thy Spirit to us, even this day. Apply these truths to our lives for Jesus' sake. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb 
at swrb.com by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.